Hello and welcome to Calling All Useful Idiots. Thank you so much for joining. Uh, make sure if you uh, don't already know to, uh, let's see, um, subscribe uh, to Substack or Locals. That's usefulidiots.substack.com, usefulidiots.locals.com. And um, yeah, make sure you... Uh, what else? Uh, listen to our, join us on our, um, our, our Monday morning streams. That's at YouTube and Rumble. And what else can you do? Yeah, just, uh, you know, have a great time with us. That's what we invite you to do. Sorry, I just dropped some yarn and I'm trying to pick it up like a cat kind of. Um, let's see, do we have any callers yet? Yeah, we got Amanda. Hi, Amanda. Good morning, Katie. Good morning. <laughs> Sounds like you had more stories than you were able to cover in your hour this morning. Was there? Yeah, some- we, we had some more. We had more Anne Applebaum. We had more Masha Gessen. Mm. Were there stories that you like? Like, was that on the same stories you did cover? I just want to know if I missed something I need to go back and look at, you know? Um. Well, we'll probably, if there's anything that you need to know, we'll try to cover it on um, Thursday Throwdown. Oh, I'm so happy to hear that because I do get most of my news from (laughs) about what's going. It's so stressful in the world. I mean, yeah, I, I almost completely ruined my night last night going down that rabbit hole of, I can't believe we're on the brink of nuclear. Man, nobody likes to hear that shit. Right. (laughs) So I do appreciate the way that you guys approach this. Thanks. So, um, and I can't believe there's no callers. I can I'm so happy that you're here. I want people to be here and asking questions because I think this is such a valuable resource for people to understand things that maybe they didn't get it when you were saying it in your hour. Right. Right. Well, and we so do have right as you said that Kate showed up, but that oh, doesn't mean you have to get off because we're here for the callers. Thank you. And I do, I, I can't even tell you how much that I appreciate that. And for folks that aren't on call in as much as I am, I'm perpetually here for some reason, but I, I, I it, it's so good to have somebody here who has a structured show that makes things, it makes it a lot easier to know what's going on in the world and have questions answered. Oh, but thanks. I'll let, I'll let I'll let Kate come in and and if I have a question I will call back in. I promise. Yeah, great. And guys, don't be shy because what often happens is no one is here at the beginning, and then we don't have time to answer the questions of people who come on later. So right. So call now, folks. This yeah. is the time. This is when. This is the time. If not now, when? If not us, who? Exactly. Well, yeah. happy happy last June uh, episode. Oh, yeah, that's true. Next month is July, and that means it's my birthday. 7-Eleven, everyone. 7-Eleven. All yeah. right. I put it on my calendar. Great. Now I know. Right. <laughs> Have a good day. You too. And I recommend, by the way, this is a very related thing. I recommend that interview that I did with Lev Galinkin, the Ukrainian uh, historian. I mean, sorry, Ukrainian journalist. And on tomorrow night, I forgot to say this, I will be having on... Um, uh, Omali Yeshitela, the head of the African People's Socialists Party, who's been indicted as a Russian agent. I mean, they've called him like 
they've accused him basically of being that, of conspiring with Russia. And I'll also be having on Glenn Greenwald, who's going to be talking about the life and legacy of his late husband, um, David Miranda. So make sure you go to that, youtube.com slash the Katie Helper Show. Okay, let's talk to Kate. Hi, Kate. How's it going? Hi, it's going good. Um, sounds like you've got a lot of great interviews coming up on the Katie Helper Show. Thanks. So I'll definitely want um, I mostly just um, called in because, you know, we got called out in the audience by, um, was that Amanda? Yeah. Or, yeah. Um, so I felt like, you know, I better call in. Um, but also, I just wanted to mention that I think it's kind of funny that all these um, – that all these people who are sort of celebrating the, um, like the, what they claimed was going to be a Russian, a civil war inside Russia. Um, none of them like ever said like, Oh, well, Ukraine's in a better negotiating position right now. Maybe they can negotiate a good peace deal or something. Right. You know, there's, there's no thought of the war ever ending. Like it doesn't matter right. if, yeah. if they think Russia is in a weaker position, then they just like to crow about how weak Russia is. Right. And how they should like keep funding the war more because they're going to accomplish great things and like it's a justification for the war. If Russia takes over Bakhmut, it's evidence that like Russia is going to conquer all of Ukraine if we don't send more weapons to Ukraine. So either way, we have to continue the war forever. Yeah. Yeah. Very so true. I just I found that yeah distressing because it seems like there's just no no way they're ever yeah. interested in the deaths. So right. except I guess maybe if you know. Cornell West gets elected or RFK somehow beats yeah. Biden in the primary or I guess maybe Donald Trump. Right. Um, it's pretty scary. But That's yeah, it's the carry in its own way. Yeah. So, um, yeah. So that was distressing, but I'm very glad that you watched Sunday news. So we don't have to, because I don't think I could have sat through that. Like just seeing some of the, like seeing Apple bombs article right. um, was really enough for me. Right. Um, and I had seen two of those um, stories. I'm not sure if they were true for sure or not, but right. I had seen stories about the helicopters getting shot down. Right. And I did think like it seemed like it could be kind of serious. Like when Putin put out that statement, I, I work in night jobs, so I was up when all this was happening. Um, but when Putin put out that like statement about, um, you know, calling him a traitor and, you know, he'd kind of responded, it seemed like they were on sort of like a war footing. So, I mean, I'm glad that there wasn't a civil war in Russia with, like, nukes being, like, captured by this crazy mercenary guy and, like, Putin and the guy, like, using them against each other. Like, that seems like it would be awful and, you know, the radiation would spread definitely to Europe. Right. Um, so I don't I don't know why it is that we're supposed to, like, cheer a civil war inside Russia. It seems really dangerous. But right. I'm like, I mean, I guess I would get if they were saying, like, okay, well, Ukraine's going to advance and take over a little territory and then the war can end. But they don't want the war to end. It's like, anyways. Yeah. All right. Um, anyways, no thanks for watching happens, the Sunday news for us. No, and I'll definitely watch those interviews. Great. Thank you. No matter what happens, they want the war to continue. And they use yeah. every opportunity, anything as a, as a chance to argue for that. Yeah. Yeah. The war must go on. Yeah. Thanks, Kate. Okay, Nestor. Hello. <clears throat> hey, Katie. Good morning. Good morning. You definitely got to stop by a 7-Eleven on your birthday. I know. I get a slushie, right? Yeah. I'll, I'll, get, I'll hook you up. Don't worry. 
Okay, I've never actually had a slushy. It was called Slurpee, but Slurpee. it's pretty much the same thing. Yeah, it's real sweet. Uh, it's, it's like a lot of sugar, frozen sugar. Oh, yeah, that's so, kind of good. Yeah, so yeah, I mean, this is all interesting. Uh, it's, it's uh, I don't know for me personally, the way I saw like New York Times, I saw every newspaper printing about this. And for me personally, it just looked like really, really a uh, huge desperation from 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 the part of the U.S. government. I mean, they they're just wishing for like Godzilla to appear in the middle of Russia and start, you know, doing the flame breath and all that. Right. <laughs> yeah, because it, it just shows how weak their position is in this proxy war. You know, like when you're wishing. For for a coconut to fall on the head of your enemy is it's like you you you're really desperate you know you really don't have any more moves that you can play against someone and and it, it just it just becomes this this game of of you know praying to God or praying to the devil which is most likely what they do right <laughs> that, that something serious happens over there but <clears throat> I mean it 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 was I don't think. The Russian military was worried about a mercenary group going rogue. It's like you're talking about. I think the 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 conservative number was I think twenty five thousand men in that mercenary group, and right. only about a thousand or or a few hundred were actually going along with uh, with promotion or whatever his name is. And and he was already see you know he was already going through like psychological breakdowns and all that. So this guy was ready an unstable person. I mean, he he's actually I'm not what what I'm not sure I haven't kept up with what exactly is going to happen to him now that everything's cooled off. But Well, he's going he's in Belarus. He, oh, so he's going to Belarus to yeah. what, to stay there and uh, not what so what's going to happen to him? He's just going to Belarus and and Yeah. Stay there? That's the plan for now, yeah. But uh, he's been, uh, I think, well, he was taken off from command of the Wagner Group, right? Yeah. Oh, definitely. Yeah. Yeah. So, In fact, I'm going to bring in my friend Josh. Josh, unmute yourself. My friend Josh, who's been doing a lot of reading up on this to uh, answer okay. some of the questions. Yeah, because this has been within 24 hours, right? I don't, right. Think, I don't think it's even been 24 hours yet. Josh, hey, what do you have to say about all this? Um, yeah, it's... Uh, the deal that we know about so far is that Pergosian is in exile in Belarus. So apparently not just there for the moment, but not allowed to come back to Russia and right. is no longer in charge of Wagner. And that some of the Wagner units are, um, maybe all of them are going to be incorporated into the command of the Russian military somehow. So um, that's kind of what they've been saying publicly so far. Yeah. Um, so, but apparently no, uh, no formal like charges were levied against Prigozhin, no charges of treason, no trial, nothing like that. And then there's a lot of speculation that he'll be assassinated, but you know, who knows? I, I don't think so. they, if, they, if he was going to be killed, they would have killed him by now. You know, that's not even... Why? Why would they go through the trouble of assassinating someone when he, he like, may fall out a window? Yeah, there's a lot of staircases in yeah. in in Belarus as well as Russia. So, 
Um, I mean, it was, he was a hard person to kill up until a few days ago because he had a, a lot of people around him. So now that he's a little bit been separated from from the the infantrymen that were protecting him, uh, maybe that'll change. I don't know. It's weird. I, I wonder why. I mean, I think, we I still don't really know the exact terms of the deal, and we also don't really know why he would agree to it. And there's just a lot of unknowns, really. Yeah, I mean, he, he's kind of got what the Hunter Biden deal. <laughs> yeah, a little better than that. a little, not quite as sweet as the Hunter Biden deal. Oh, so Hunter Biden got it even better, huh? Oh yeah. Wow. So, yeah. but yeah, so I think yeah, I mean, but in my opinion, personally, if they were going to kill him and make an example of it, then they would have done it with you know shock and all. Uh, just just by bombing the hell out of that group because they basically didn't have they were so they they didn't have nowhere to go they had to run if they had chosen to uh, violently uh, oppose the Russian army to to actually try to have some sort of insurrection so. So I think I think yeah. uh, well Putin's a PhD you know. Smart guy. He, 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 he never. I from from what I can tell, he really doesn't like having to use violence as a as a method of negotiation. Unlike the U.S., which likes to project its violent tendencies onto its rivals, because had something happened similar here, like let's say with Blackwater or or whatever other mercenary groups they have here, I think they would have made a, a very clear example of them with cruise missiles and, 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 and you know, drones and all kinds of things. Because uh, I think in the past, historically, they've always made a big example uh, of uh, uh, Nestor, you're breaking up. Uh, like, just burn out. I think the U.S. likes to think that everyone acts like them when it comes to situations like this, where they'll just, you know, violently handle something like this. And the only time I can remember is the during the Civil War, where they actually had, you know, examples of how they treated uh, Confederate soldiers and and how they burned farms and stuff like that. So. Maybe they're just hoping for too much uh, when it comes to Russia that it'll just somehow collapse in on itself. But I think that's all a projection of where U.S. sits right now, because right now there is so much uncertainty here, you know, with especially with Saudi Arabia switching to uh, letting themselves, you know, sell their oil with yuan uh, currency and all that. It's just so much change happening. I just don't know. I, I think they're just desperate. They're just wishing... You know, upon a star that somehow Godzilla just appears and and takes care of the Russian problem. You know, Godzilla. Yeah. What do you think, Josh, about those statements about Russia using violence? I mean, yeah, I think. Well, I think he's right that a lot of people in the U.S. Uh, security apparatus would like to see some kind of quick resolution to it, but I. I think probably there are also a lot of people that understand that it's incredibly dangerous to have a destabilized nuclear power. Um, 
the nuclear weapons in Russia are all over the place in terms of they're in many different provinces and areas of the country. So if you had different competing factions that control different parts of them, it would be a huge mess and way worse than the current situation. So, um, what was the Putin also isn't exactly well. Nestor was also saying that the U.S. would would retaliate strongly, and he used uh, the Civil War as an example. But Putin, we should point out, Putin's not like a peacenik either. Yeah, I mean, it's hard to say. Yeah, there were a lot of, I mean, we had a civil war, so there was obviously a lot of retaliation on both sides. But then, you know, like Jefferson Davis was, um, they considered trying him for treason, and um, which is a capital crime, and ended up not doing it. And there's a lot of debate historically about whether that was for legal reasons or political reasons. Um, and then there was also sort of um, some amnesty of a sort for, I don't think Lee, Lee wasn't tried, but all of his possessions were taken. Like famously, his residence in Arlington, Virginia is now the National Cemetery. Um, so there was kind of a symbolic humiliation there. But um yeah, I mean, it's hard to say. I mean, you know, the. I tend to think, like, I think probably the closest contemporary analog would be the January 6th thing. Right. But, but and I tend to think if the January 6th uh, rioters, whatever you want to call them, um, had actually done the, the maximal thing, if they had, like, actually gone in there and killed Congress people and... Um, I think the military would have gone in and just killed all, them all. Like, I don't. That's, oh, yeah. You know, right. One I woman killed. Um, what's her name? I can't remember her name. Yeah, Ashley. Bobbitt. Um, Bob, Bob, yeah. yeah. No, but I'm saying if the if the rioters had killed like Pence and AOC right. and all and Pelosi. Um, yeah, I mean, I think the U.S. military, the National Guard or the 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 appropriate military units would have surrounded the building and systematically killed any everyone inside so yeah i don't i mean i don't think um but wasn't poon pretty brutal to the chechen chechens yeah and and in the georgian war that there was a georgian revolt and they put it down pretty brutally yeah and there was i think even some communal punishment there were terrorist activities that he punished communally like he didn't directly uh, the terrorists died in the in the actions but the the payback was pretty extreme um so yeah i mean you know i don't he's not averse to using violence um obviously (laughs) like like, like over here also there's a saying that if the january 6 rioters had been all black and they were rioting because trump won then uh they wouldn't hesitate to use lethal force i mean that that's something that's not even in doubt. Uh, if if the shoe had been on the other foot, on the black foot, yeah. I mean, if like in some in, in the height of like the George Floyd protests, if BLM had like stormed the Capitol, like yeah, it would it would have been a bloodbath. Yeah, yeah, it would it would have been yeah. a complete bloodbath. I mean, I was seeing videos from the uh, back when George Floyd, uh, when the protests were going on, where. They uh, literally would fly the helicopters, maybe just like one foot above people's heads, to, to disperse them. I mean, yeah. like literally, you know, just like 
just one little push down and, and they would just would kill people under a helicopter. So, you know, there was so much, uh, huge, a lot of violence that was used against uh, the black protester. And if they had uh, stormed the Capitol building, then <laughs> right. I don't think there's much doubt that what would have uh, happened. Even if but I think, I think con uh, also it's good to think about, I mean, if we're now that we're talking about imaginary hypotheticals, but like, um, you know, in the January 6th case, if it was maximally violent, um, that would not have resulted in the overthrow of the U.S. government. Like, of course not. Um, and even in, in this case, even if um, it seems highly unlikely, given the balance of forces, that if if Prigozhin had invaded Moscow and gone directly and gotten directly into a shooting fight with the Russian army, that he would have prevailed. So, um, yeah, and he has crazy. to have known that. I mean, he's he's very uh, unpredictable and kind of a loose cannon, but he's not stupid. So, uh, you know, I think there's just a lot of questions about suicidal. like. Yeah, I don't think he was suicidal. I think he was just playing yeah. the same game he had played before of trying to bully the Russian commanders to give him what he wants, just like he did right. in the previous battle. So he just right. he, he just overplayed his hand. He got too cocky for his own good and now the well he didn't really suffer. Well, that he might have played it well. Like one of the things they left out of the Sunday shows is that he was slated to, they were going to lose their contracts anyway. He was kind of going to be edged out. Um, that was kind of the way things were going. And so he might have decided that his best move was to go on offense instead of being pushed out of command of Wagner. And maybe that little stunt enabled him to get a secure exile in Belarus with his fortune intact and, like, we don't really know because there's so much that's opaque about the whole situation. But, um, you know, like, um, and there's so much they're not talking about because they're so busy crowing about, you know, how weak this makes Putin and, you know, just, like, we can't get any real information out about any of this, you know. Yeah, I mean, and they, 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 a lot of that is just the desperation that they have that they're losing so bad at this proxy war that their offensive uh, just completely flopped. Uh, they they made no gains. They pretty much are now back. They're still back in square one. So they're they're just really desperate to also you know distract people from the fact that the Ukrainian offensive was just a complete failure. It, it achieved nothing. And I think they wanted to capture that nuclear power plant and they weren't, they didn't even get close to it. So you know, that was like one of the big, I think, goals that they had. So, I mean, I don't know. I mean, it's, it's, it's just like, it's so much, because you see it like in every newspaper, like, oh my God, it was just in every newspaper the next day. It's just, it's just oh my god civil war in russia this and that i'm like jesus christ and it's been like this since since the proxy war started but i mean they just really they just really laid it on heavy uh, with, with this one thing you know yeah yeah so 
Somebody in the comments also brought up that the USSR dissolved and was a nuclear power, but it didn't fall into civil war and there was a replacement government and a transition of power. Yeah, and I mean, um, the and it also didn't still, still dissolve violently. Um, there was a peaceful. Yeah. So again, I don't think that's a really good, <laughs> like saying, hey, the USSR became the Russian Federation. Therefore, like any transition from Putin to whatever's next will be smooth is um, not a terribly good argument in my view. But I, I think uh, a lot of it's projection from, from our end because they, I don't know what would happen here. Like if, if something just started dismantling in that way, uh, which I think when the economy finally, you know, implodes, because right now it's just being held up by the by the low interest rates. So so we're we're still waiting to see the true impact of the inflation that has already begun, but we haven't felt the full brunt of it. And and I don't know, man. That, that I think they they kind of you know like when you know you're you're in a bad house, but you want to distract from your own house you want to just talk about your neighbors and what's going on in their house and while your house is turning and starting to come aflame and, and burning down but you, you still want to ignore the problem and that's what i feel is going on here in our society and and there is no answer to it right now i mean we uh i don't know what what's the hope for 2024 you know we still maybe rfk or or maybe who knows, uh, you know, we, we don't, right now, it's just an incomplete un, cloud of uncertainty of what the hell is going to happen next year during election time. Right. Well, thanks, Nestor, for calling in. We got another caller, but always great to talk to you. All right. Thank you, Katie. Thank Thanks. you, Josh. Okay, Radical. Hey, you're unmuted. What's up? Hello? Hello, hello, hello. You're unmuted, but we can't hear you. Are you not talking? All right, well, let's keep talking, Josh. What else do you have for us? Josh, are you there? Is it me? Can you hear me now? Can you hear me, Katie? Yeah, we can. Okay, I'm sorry about that. Uh, technical difficulties. Okay. Um, I just had two things I wanted to uh, bring up. Uh, the first is um, that during this whole, uh, you know, uh, whatever, 12 hours of chaos, um, I was, you know, jumping around all over the internet trying to find out what's going on, what's the actual status of things, and um, of all the people uh, that I came across and all these commentators, uh, actually Richard Medhurst was the voice of reason. Um, he, he did not, you know, go off the wall or say that, you know, this is, you know, the sky falling. Um, he actually kind of kept it together. And that was 
uh, pretty comforting. And then this morning I noticed that Glenn Greenwood also uh, mentioned this on Twitter uh, about Richard Metter. So, you know, he just did a great job for a young guy um, who doesn't have all the, uh, you know, big money that, that the other media people we saw this morning uh, have. Um, and then the second thing is uh, there was a bit of a Freudian slip that um, seemed to have even slipped past uh, you and Aaron this morning. What was that? That was um, Admiral uh, Stavridis saying that this event was going to provide a treasure trove of intelligence to the U.S. military. It's a sort of a, you know, tacit um, admittance that the U.S. military is deeply involved here. Oh. You see what I mean? It's kind of, it seemed to me like a Freudian slip anyway. Um, so you're saying that it means that they are involved? Um, um, I guess. When you figure that this guy, he's on uh, MSNBC all the time, you know, um, so he's basically, you know, part of the, you know, intelligence establishment um, that's, you know, being paid to propagandize the American people. Um, and here it comes out of his mouth that this is going to be a treasure trove of, you know, intelligence from the U.S. military, it just struck me that, you know, maybe he shouldn't be saying that out loud. <laughs> right. Um, um, let me see. Is Josh, what do you have to say? I'm going to mute you. Bad effort. Josh, I don't see you. Why did you Oh, let me got disconnected. Hold on. Speak, and then I'll mute you. Because you have a bad echo. Uh, Josh, are you there? I'm inviting you to speak. Or just add, okay, you've been invited to speak. Hold on. Okay. Okay. So what's the question? Yeah, what, whether his saying that this is a treasure trove of intelligence um, or that we're going to have a treasure trove of intelligence like reveals U.S. involvement. Oh, yeah. Uh, I mean, I don't, not any more than we already knew. I mean, we know that the U.S. is spying on the whole situation. <laughs> so I think... Everything that happens is monitored pretty closely. I think that's a safe assumption. I think it just um, reveals things because it's an unusual event. So when things that are different happen, you get different information. So um, in that sense, it, it gives them more information. But um, yeah, I don't know. I Yeah, I think that that's been pretty well established that the CIA is actually in Ukraine and so is JSOC. I think the New York Times ran a piece on that, like pretty early in the war, within the first JSOC. six months. What's that? What's JSOC? JSOC is the Joint Special Operations Command, which is basically 
a command within the military that has um, control over the various special operations forces, Navy SEALs, Delta Force, DevGrew, like all of the sort of elite special operations soldiers that the U.S. has. So, and I think it's possibly clear that a lot of those units are operating in Ukraine, even though it's not they're not officially supposed to be there, right? but they're, they're American citizens. So they're not supposed to be fighting that war. Um, but yeah, I mean, if you, if you think JSOC's not there, I don't know. I have a bridge to Southern Florida, right. I, I guess, but, um, um, but yeah, I don't know. I don't know if it's that revealing. I, I mean, I think that's, that was kind of demonstrated early on in the conflict that the U S was there. And that the U.S. is also, I think a couple months ago, they had a thing that came out that that we're also monitoring U- the Ukrainians as well, internally, like spying on them. Because um, there was some revelations about, uh, I can't remember now, I'm drawing a blank. But I don't know if you remember that story. But... Um, hello? Uh- yeah. Yeah. Okay, let's see what we got. Any more callers? Oh, yeah, we got some more callers. Okay, Jonathan. Hey, Jonathan. Hello. How's it going? Uh, so far, so good. I would have called in a little earlier, but I was doing my post-shift uh, grocery shopping, and it was a little noisy in there. Got it. Uh, oh, you're an EMT. I, you and Josh can talk about like being lifesavers. Josh is a fireman. Oh, hey, yep. how's it going? Yeah, I just got uh, off a of 48. Oh, right on. Right on. Yeah, I got off mine yesterday. <laughs> I hear you. Yeah, well, the good thing is we can get all of our hours out of the way in a couple of days and, and uh, have the rest of the week off. Yeah, it's a good schedule for sure. Yeah. So uh, anyway, I was uh, if it's not too much of a distraction, I, I kind of wanted to to talk about the uh, useful idiots episode on Friday, which uh, I appreciated. Okay. Um, like David Talbot's book, like I think the real important part uh, of that. Okay, one was second. Actually... Let, me Let me catch people up. So if you missed it, useful idiots this week, we talked to David Talbot, who's written a bunch of books, including Brothers, The Secret uh, Kennedy Years, and The Devil's uh, Chessboard about the Dulles Brothers. Okay. And also yeah, Aaron, it was the- Aaron Good, the host of um, the host of American Exception podcast and the uh, author of the book American Exception. Okay. Yeah, which I love. I love both of those, but like, honestly, like the best part of both of those books was not the Kennedy section. I thought it was the, like David Talbot's, like what was really, um, you know, I thought extraordinarily well done is, you know, the explanation of the ways in which, uh, Dulles, the Dulles brothers were collaborating with Nazis before, during, and after the war in open defiance of FDR's orders. And, uh, I mean, he brought a ton of receipts for that. And I thought that that was incredible. And like, these are like, they're part of like a whole group of historians, uh, who, for whom I have great respect. Uh, but I think 
uh, Aaron Mate actually did a fine job of kind of addressing that sort of elephant in the room with their their Kennedy coverage, which is like if you ask them, they will say they understand the Kennedys aren't perfect, but yet they kind of tend to and Oliver Stone, I would include in that, like they kind of tend to have a knee jerk reaction to every criticism of the Kennedys. And, um, you know, while Noam Chomsky and um, and Cyrus aren't they aren't perfect historians, like a lot of that stuff, they didn't just like they pulled it directly off the Kennedy tapes, which I've heard a bunch of. And like there is definitely like I'm willing to concede that, OK, maybe Kennedy was serious about ending the war in Vietnam. But one of the last things he did before he was assassinated was order the assassination of um, of uh, of Diem, the, the prime minister of uh, of South Vietnam. Whatever his flaws like that doesn't sound like something a guy would do if he planned on, um, you know, basically staying out of it. And, you know, there's at least some question there as to, um, you know, whether they would switch their moods from on a day to day basis. Both the brothers, really. Um, And unfortunately, like in Aaron's case, it sometimes translates into a knee jerk defensiveness of RFK, despite his Good's case. Yeah, just to clarify. Yeah. Like the RFK Jr., um, like even when he has like terrible positions on every issue except for Ukraine. So right. I don't know. It was it was an interesting conversation and um, I, I thought enlightening. And like they're both authors whose uh, whose books I do think everybody should read because they're they're fabulous um, kind of exposers of the sort of history that's very much been excised from our history education. And um, it's important that people know about. Right. And, you know, it's just, that's one thing I would, like I said, I would bear in mind, that's the one grain of salt I would, uh, I would give that they're, they're kind of a little bit hagiographic about Kennedy's. Mm-hmm. And like, they, and like I said, when you ask them, they seem to acknowledge, yes, Kennedy's aren't perfect, but they don't necessarily always behave like they understand that. Like right. if that makes sense. Yeah, which sure. I thought was I thought Aaron Aaron Monte did a good job addressing. Yeah, yeah, but yeah, I appreciated the episode anyway. What'd you say? Sorry, there's a little bit of a delay. I didn't mean to talk over you. I was saying I appreciated the episode anyway, and especially the pairing. The the what? The pairing of of those okay. two of of Talbot and and Aaron Good. I know they're friends. Yeah. Yeah, Josh, did you hear this episode yet? Yeah, I thought it was great. I'm a big fan of Aaron's work. I haven't read Talbot's book yet. And yeah, I think it's a fair point. And Aaron was pushing back. Aaron Mate was pushing back. I mean, there's a sort of left interpretation of the Kennedys and then the, their differ, their interpretation differs somewhat. So yeah, I mean, it, and I, I don't know enough to get super into the weeds on all of the different Kennedy uh, <laughs> positions. I don't know, but... Um, I mean, that's the thing. I don't think anybody does. Right, yeah. Uh, Jonathan, yeah. do you think it's fair to say that they were more anti-war than, like, Johnson? Um, it's tough to say, but I'd, I'd, I'd say, like, slightly, yes. Yeah. Yes. because And, like, Johnson was not as pro-war as people say he was, and I think uh, both Talbot and... I've heard... I, I know I've heard Aaron Good acknowledge that. Um, that, uh, yeah, Johnson was definitely in bed with some, some people who are 
very military industrial complex, but he was also very resentful that they were pressuring him into stepping up the Vietnam War, which he always believed was a distraction from his real priority, which was his domestic um, great society programs, which, you know, he was right about. Like, basically, that sucked all the air out of the room and completely uh, he had to use up his political credibility to to do what his uh, his his military industrial complex buddies wanted him to do and didn't have anything left for, I mean, he did get Medicare and Medicaid passed, you know, you got to give him that. But, uh, beyond that, like everything he wanted to do, like Vietnam sucked all the air out of the room. Right. So yeah, I'd like, I definitely, yeah, I'd probably give the Kennedys the edge, especially since, uh, Aaron does bring a lot of receipts that, uh, it does seem like their opinion on the matter changed, uh, depending on their mood. But overall, they definitely did seem more serious than not about, um, you know, pulling out of that uh, that particular thing. Right. Um, so, yeah, I would yeah. definitely say they know what they're like. They definitely know what they're talking about and they're not making things up. But then neither is, is Cy Hirsch or Noam Chomsky. Right. Uh, and they like I don't feel I feel like they're they're kind of reflexively dismissive of the disconfirming evidence, if that makes sense. Yeah. Maybe I'll have a debate between them. Maybe. We'll get Siren Noman to debate yeah. the Aaron and uh, David. Yeah. That might get a little yeah. contentious. Yeah. It definitely might. Yeah. You should, like, if you saw on Twitter, like, his reaction to, uh, Rihanna Joy Gray interviewed Chris Hedges, who cited a bunch of stuff from, uh, um, from the Noam Chomsky book, I guess. And, uh, uh Man, Aaron was going off. Yeah. How, how I mean, dare they say that about Bobby Kennedy? Be able to separate the legacy of Kennedy. Like, to me, it's like, okay, this is an interesting time to look at the legacy of Kennedy because RFK's in the race and talking about it. But I think we can, like, separate those two things. Like, Yeah. Or else it just looks like we're political advocates. Right. Okay, and that's, that's kind of... Yeah, that's, that's more or less where I am. Like... Yeah, it, it's interesting to look at the legacy, but also it's best not to confuse what's going on now with right. uh, modern Kennedys, with what was happening in the 60s with, uh, you know, RFK and JFK. And right. like I said, it's also worth not forgetting what Chris Hedge, Chris Hedge mentioned in that interview, that these are the children of Joe Kennedy, who had a definite... Um, you know, pro-elite, pro-fascist political agenda. Uh, and it, uh, you know, these, uh, these people were personal friends with Joe McCarthy, uh, that, uh, RFK, despite what drunken McCarthy may have, you know, once gotten into a fight with him on the Senate floor, uh, he sat at Joe McCarthy's right hand side during those judiciary committee hearings, RFK did. Right. And, uh, you know, these things are worth keeping in mind that they don't just suddenly do a complete about face and have a, you know, a religious conversion that they're still a mixed bag and they have these two things in their head, these cognitive dissonances that they go back and forth on. And yeah, like anyway, that's how, yeah, that's how that I did with um, MLK. He like tried to convince him to, I don't remember what it is. I have to reread it, but he tried, he, they had some talk in the Rose garden. He tried to convince MLK, maybe they're like not affiliate with communists. I can't remember. Mm. I have to yeah, and there was a lot of stuff like that. There were things on the Kennedy tapes where they referred to 
various civil rights activists and uh, activist measures and protests as, you know, a thorn in their side and a distraction from the real issues right. and so on and so forth. Like these were not um, the kind of like, uh, like if you're looking for heroes, don't look in politics. Right. That's all I can say. Like, right. and, you know, kind of treating them as though they are these heroic figures is, is probably not. It's completely, certainly out of character with the rest of their historical scholarship, right. which is absolutely top notch and some of the best I've seen. And it really, like a lot of the stuff that they both wrote about, kind of really forced me to reassess the way I saw a lot of that history mm-hmm. and made me start asking other questions and digging in other areas. And, um, you know, honestly, Aaron Good uh, with Gabriel Rockhill did, I think it's a Patreon only one but really one of the best breakdowns of what fascism actually is, where it comes from, what its basic elements are that I've ever heard. Yeah. Well, what was I just going to say? Something came into my head and now I lost it. Oh, sorry about that. I talked no, too much. No, it wasn't because of you. Um, uh, oh, whatever happens, it'll be less contentious than the debate I had between Aaron and Michael Tracy. Yeah, I didn't realize it at the time, but like apparently Michael Tracy is known for that because I've only ever heard in Michael Tracy in a context of I heard him talking to Aaron Mate once and they seemed to be on the same page on a lot of things. And it was an interesting discussion. He came to on useful ideas also. Yeah, that, I think that was where I heard the only other time I heard him. And uh, like apparently he has a call in that I've never been on, but a bunch of people tell me like he's really kind of. Like he buys into like a lot of uh, really cringe kind of Russiagate narrative sometimes mm. and, um, you know, just goes off on people in his calling for no good reason and things like that. So apparently, like the people that attend his calling regularly told me that that debate with Aaron Good and and him went pretty much exactly the way they thought it would. Right. But uh, Aaron Good was actually, um, you know, very calm, brought the receipts. Um, you know, I, you know, but much of, a, of a referendum on the, on Kennedy, on RFK, which I think clouded it. Yeah, that's true. And, you know, it's it is it's an issue also for Aaron Good, I think, because I think he sometimes confuses those issues. Yeah, I would say they both it was both present in both of their. Uh, yeah, but I mean, like. But uh, Michael Tracy definitely kind of looked bad uh, losing his cool uh, very yeah. easily and for no good reason. Um, and just being very irritable and cranky. Yeah. Um, which I'm told is normal for him. Right. <laughs> All right. Well, yeah, I do think it did. Yeah. Sorry. Okay. Delay. But yeah, thanks for having me up. Of course. Thanks for coming on. All right. We have Rena now. Hi, Rena. Hi, Katie. How are you? Is it Rena or Rena? It's Rena. Okay, Rena. Great. Good. How are you? Good. Uh, greetings from Nebraska. I am your Nebraska correspondent, although Aaron's not here to appreciate me calling in. Um, that was really interesting what Jonathan was saying, and and agree with him that your most recent uh, show with David Talbot and. Uh, 
Aaron Good is his last name. That that was really an interesting one. Um, I I keep hearing about the devil's chessboard and I haven't read it yet because I've got enough depression in my life. But uh, that that was interesting. Just real quickly, the whole the whole thing about Kennedy hagiography. um, If I could speak to that, I'm a little older than Aaron Good. And uh, I was a huge, um, huge fan of uh, Bobby Sr. And he actually spoke at my high school. Oh, wow. When he was campaigning for president uh, prior to the Nebraska primary in 1968. And I I remember that day like it was yesterday. Mm. And... uh, you know, this this is not this is not a democratic state. <laughs> right. Wasn't back then, really isn't now. And uh, every everybody in the panhandle of Nebraska turned out to see to see Bobby Kennedy. Mm. And I'm really not exaggerating about that. The auditorium was jammed, the foyer was jammed, uh the sidewalks were jammed, the roadsides on both sides, both sides of the road out back out to the airport at the end of the speech were jammed. Might've been, might've been jammed before the speech too. I don't, I don't know that that wasn't how I got, got to the, uh, got to my high school. So just see, just seeing something like that and remembering it as distinctly as I do, um, I could not help but agree with what David Talbot said about how the the assassinations that year, and I remember um, MLK's very very distinctly also. Um, it, it it did feel it did feel like there was hope for a minute, and right. then it was gone. So I I kind of get the Hagee. Hagiography. However, fond as I was of 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 Bobby from from my my remembrances of that time, and I do think he had some genuine conversions over some issues, like in spite of being, as Chris Hedges argues, you know, this rich family kind of patrician right. part of the, blah blah blah. Uh, his concern for the poor among us, I believe was real. And we haven't, we haven't had a, pre- a presidential candidate talk, talk about poor people uh, in any similar way uh, up until John Edwards. Right. Uh, in the, in the, er- in, yeah, in the early two thousands. So, um, you know, so B- Bobby senior flaws, whatever. Yeah, we all have them. And yes, he, he probably does get idolized um, somewhat. And it, it's interesting. Um, well, they're martyrs also. That's what yeah. And, and, and that's exactly it. And uh, however, in my case, anyway, that does not translate to junior. Uh, I've <laughs> The, the the conversation the the part of the interview that he had with Glenn Greenwald about uh, Palestine and Israel yeah. was 
just mind numbing to me. And I have, I've seen, um, seen a video clip from uh, Miko Pellid. Yeah. Talking about, talking about all of that. And uh, it, it, it's just beyond me. I mean, I, I used, I used to feel the same way, mm-hmm. you know, when I was 18 years old and I just read the book Exodus. Right. Exactly. And, and, and I'd seen the movie, my God, Paul Newman was in that movie. It was a great movie. Right. You know, I, Can you it, tell it, people it, about what Exodus is for people who don't know. Exodus uh, is a book written by Leon Uris and it's basically, you know, the founding of Israel Very and uh, yeah, very romanticized version. And again, I, I thought it was a, I thought it was a nonfiction book and I thought the movie was a documentary. I mean, right. of course I didn't think either one of those things, right. but I thought there, I thought there, I thought there was a lot of truth in it. Right. I thought there, I thought, I thought it was the truth, you know, and, and the Jew, there was nobody in Palestine. There was nobody in Palestine. Right. It was a desert and the Jews came, the, the, Israel, the Israeli settlers came and they made the desert bloom like a rose and on and on and on. However, however, I was very young when I believed that. He's not young, right. uh, Junior. He's a little younger than I am. Everybody's a little younger than I am anymore. Uh, <laughs> he's a little younger, but I'm sorry. I'm sorry. As George Galloway says, and he's right, period, he's just right. Uh, ignorance in this age of social media is a choice. Mm. It is a choice. And uh, I don't know it it entertain. It doesn't entertain me, but in an effort to br- break through the good God, how could you have such a horrible, ignorant view of all of this stuff? Right. Um, you know, I'm tweeting at him and I'll, you know, it's not hard to find something horrifying on Twitter 25 times a day and I'm not doing it 25 times a day, but once or twice a day, I send him something, you know, that he needs to get informed about. And I've, I've noticed a couple of other people have fallen into my Twitter feeds who seem Hmm. to be doing the same thing. So, and I, I really hope he will come. I I really hope he will come and talk to someone like Max Blumenthal or you or, I don't know, name a lefty anywhere who could straighten him out about, yeah. about his whole view of Palestine and Israel. And that, that's all I wanted to say about that. Just, you know, we, I, I get, what's your, what's your Twitter? My Twitter, uh, she Nebraskan, all one word. Cool. I'll follow you. Oh, thank you. Yeah. That's put very it flattering. In, put it in the chat so people know what it is. Okay. I will, I will do that. Um, Oh, I real, real quickly. What what was the, what was the Cheney story that you and Aaron skipped today? If you don't mind my asking. Oh yeah, it was him on um, talking about Gor- Yeltsin and Gorbachev. Oh, Dick. It was Dick, not oh, Liz. Dick. Not 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 his daughter. Yeah. Oh, so they so they dragged Dick out to talk no, about from the nineties oh, no. flashback. <laughs> well. That was worth skipping then. That was no loss for anyone. Okay, that was all I had. Thanks very much for listening. Thanks, Serena. Make sure you put your Twitter in there. I will do that. Thank you, Katie. Thank you. All righty. Phil. Hey, Katie. Hey, Jeff. What's going on? Hey. 
Hey, um, I was curious what y'all thought about um, some of the statements that Prigozhin made in, uh, a few days ago. He like released this video talking about um, what, what the real reasons were for the invasion, or I guess the, the more important reasons. Um, I know like the bigger issue that people wanted to talk about, and I get why is, you know, the possibility that there was this actual coup and civil war. And I, I think just me, I kind of knew to ignore that, but, um, well, at least I didn't think it was a real possibility. Right. But I thought his statement was really interesting. And, um, yeah, I just, I, 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 I wish to see more kind of response to that. Because I, I feel like that that's the debate that was also happening a lot. Um, so which in, part in, of his statement are you talking about? Well, he said, um, he said that, you know, the invasion had more to do with um, Shoigu trying to receive a hero star. Um, with uh, Russian oligarchs wanting to plunder the Donbass. Um, he talked about um, that there was no imminent threat um, from uh, Ukraine and uh, NATO. Um, that is, that is to, across the Russian border. Um, so it was very much, you know, I mean, it's kind of a big thing. So I just, yeah. just wanted to know what people thought about that. Yeah. Yeah, for sure. I mean, it's also really interesting that he is also a big supporter of the war and uh, his main gripe with Shoigu is that he wasn't prosecuting it um, swiftly or brutally or overwhelmingly enough. Um, so there's a lot of, I mean, it's kind of an odd um, contrast because if he's saying that the war is unjust or based on false pretenses or based on unjust pretenses then why is he so interested in prosecuting it right and um, oh sorry go ahead keep going yeah i've seen speculation on on um in some quarters that you know he's kind of making it was making a political bid to gain political support and mobilize people in uh russia within and without the military that are dissatisfied with the way the war is going and uh, it was kind. It was kind of a Foreign sort media, of a, Western media. What's that? It also seems like a great way to get support from Western media. Oh yeah, yeah. But but that he's. I mean that he's kind of doing a populism, <laughs> sort of a fashioning himself into a populist hero uh, with that kind of thing. Um, the elites are using you basically, and. Um, trying to garner more support that way, which also has the irony that he is a, I think he's a billionaire. Yeah. So he's quite wealthy himself. Um, little, little Trumpy in there maybe, but um, yeah, I mean, I think it, it's a good question and it raises a lot of questions um, because if you uh, say, well, there, he said it out loud that the the war is wrong and false, then why is he so interested in, in uh, prosecuting it and bringing it to a conclusion that is in Russia's favor, um, which he's clearly very interested in doing. So, yeah, I think a lot of things about the entire episode just don't really add up. And for me, like a lot of the coverage was just so um, very overconfident in its analysis and predictions uh, when there's just a lot of, very confusing elements to it 
like or not confusing but just things that don't go together so yeah can i just say that yeah two two characters that i found to be really interesting and and Prigozhin was even before this if you watch his his interview especially with uh with war gonzo this mm-hmm. uh, this blogger and another guy is igor girkin and these are two 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 guys who were you know really instrumental at different points in in carrying out you know um the kremlin's plans um i mean that's not controversial to say you know and mm-hmm. um be, then also had some conflicts and and spoke in some ways sort of against what was going on and the little things that kind of slip out here and there are really interesting and they're difficult to account for um and like you said about Prigozhin, it's it's really interesting because I, I think maybe we might be missing that you know he's he is leading um, a mercenary group, right? So mm-hmm. it's to he can still be very eyes on the prize in terms of getting a, an objective done um, without needing to go through the same kinds of um, narrative. Um, it, I mean, he was demanding more ammunition, right? not so long ago it's not like he he's trying to say oh this is a this is a terrible war this is a crime and and let me explain to you why this was all a big lie no um he's saying attack harder faster right and at the same time he's like let me also explain to you some of the other dynamics going on and to the thing about you know making a populist bid it's interesting that if that's the case that is what someone says to gain um, some kind of popular favor, it says something about at least what he thinks other people might be thinking within Russia, right? I don't know. That's a bit more speculative. Sure. Yeah. I mean, the question is really like whether the people that think that are a substantial enough faction um, to help him succeed in whatever his goals were. And it doesn't, I mean, whatever the strategy was there in terms of, I mean, if, okay, well, if we're assuming that he's trying to, um, that it was some kind of coup attempt or some attempt to oust Shoigu, then in the moment, at least, it doesn't appear to have been successful. So, and then I've seen different reports, like some people are rallying around Wagner, Wagner and, um, supporting them in Rostov and then other people were arguing with them in the street and telling them to go home and why were they doing this? And then you also hear very differing reports about, you know, how much support internally Putin has within the military and without. And kind of the only thing that really seems to like the proof is in the pudding in the sense of like the only thing that we can really say for sure what the outcomes are and who's like still in charge, you know, so I'm sure there are a lot of people in Russia that feel that way, but whether they're a substantial enough faction to overthrow the regime or institute another regime is doesn't seem to be the case at the moment, right? Yeah, yeah, and I, I'm with you on, you know, in the end, you just, like, what actually went down, and I mean, that can probably help you. Yeah, um, I think I think also about what Prigozhin said about the the reasons for the war. I mean, I think you're right. Like he does have a military objective, and he's just fine to get paid to achieve that. Whether it's, right. um, but but the but the but the the argument 
that he was sort of making in those statements that you talked about was sort of that the implication was that the war is not in Russia's interests. It's in the interests of the elites that were exploiting Donbass and, um, and he does also style himself as like a nationalist patriot. So yeah. So <laughs> again, why would you aggressively prosecute a war that you don't think is in the nation's interests if you're a nationalist? It, you right. see what I mean? Cause he's not just a mercenary. He's also a big nationalist, right? Yeah, he's like a hyper-nationalist. And, and yes, they're mercenaries in the sense that they're getting paid and they're a private company, but also, like, Wagner's not going to just go work for, you know, some Someone's- other group. Yeah, it's not like the highest bidder just gets to hire them to do whatever. That's interesting what you say, and I'll, I'll look for and read up on that about him being, like, this hyper-nationalist. I know that's true about Gierkin and he's a very interesting character when you read about his background. I did not know that was true about Prigozhin. I really thought he came from this much more mercenary mindset, but I'll, I'll, I'll definitely check it out. So thank- yeah, yeah, sure. All right, everyone. Thank you so much for calling in and we will see you next week. And thank you, Josh, for joining us. Yeah. Thanks for having me. It was, it was a lot of fun. Great. Bye everyone. And why won't this end?